The U.S. stock market continues its September weakness into the first trading day of October. Gold holds strong above 1765 after a $50 move since last week's lows. Oil surges to over $78 per barrel. Brent oil moves over $80 per barrel. Bond yields retrace slightly after a strong move last week. This is the Freedom Dividend. So the weakness in the U.S. equity markets from last week continued into Friday and today's trading session, Monday, October 4th. September tends to be the weakest month of the year for stocks, and October is a generally weak month as well. Remember, October is generally a very ominous month for the stock market, as both of the two most notable stock market crashes in history have occurred at the end of October, both the 1929 crash and the crash of 1987. I don't expect to see a market crash this October, although a very heavy pullback could be imminent. But more likely, inflation pressures will continue to build, and the Federal Reserve will continue to act behind the scenes to keep the markets propped up artificially by creating more inflation as they continue their quantitative easing program. Today, though, is a very weak overall day in the markets. Some of the down moves on the day occurred in very notable tech stocks and as well as in the financial sector and other stocks. Visa down almost 4% today, Salesforce down 3%, Microsoft down 2 and 3 quarter percent, Apple was down over 3% on its lows, Boeing down 1.5%, Facebook down 4.8%, Google down 3.5%. You look at some of the other more cyclical stocks, such as Peloton down another 5.8% today, and it was extremely weak last week. Moderna down 5.6%, DocuSign down 5.6%, Zoom Video, this stock has been clobbered this year, one of the lowest trading stocks on the year after its huge run-up due to COVID, that's down 5% on the day. And we continue to see a lot of bets more on value today than we do in other stocks and other sectors that are high growth names. And so we see more moves into the industrials and consumer staples today as people are getting more conservative heading into October, especially with the rise in bond yields that we saw last week. We also got some economic data out over the past few days. The other day, we actually got the core PCE price index. And what this measures is the price of goods and services purchased by consumers excluding food and energy, and what the increase was month over month. We were looking to get a 0.2% increase in the core PCE. We instead got slightly higher, a 0.3% increase. And the PCE is now up 3.3% annually. And this is a 3.3% increase in the prices of goods that consumers are buying. Now, this is equated to a 9.3% annualized price or produce increase, which means that there is still 6% worth of price increases baked into the pipeline that companies have still not passed on to their consumers. And I've talked about this in the prior weeks. A lot of companies are refraining from passing on their price increases to their consumers, hoping that the price increases are transitory. But once these companies realize that these price increases aren't transitory and they're here to stay, 
they are going to eventually decide to pass their costs on to their consumers to maintain their profit margins. We also got personal income month over month for U.S. households. Uh, we got the expectation there. The expectation was for a 0.2% increase, and that's what we ended up getting for the month. But if we annualize the increases in personal income for 2021, we so far have increased by 10.7% for annual income. Now, this has been sort of all over the map because the income also includes government-related stimulus or unemployment benefits that have been going into American households. And so you'll notice on several months of this year and the past year, there were huge substantial increases than decreases in monthly income. For instance, the April 30th number was an increase of 21.1%. But if you remember, prior to that, new stimulus payments and child tax credits have gone out to Americans, and so that helped to increase household income. So the numbers are a bit sketchy there, but so far we have a 10.7% annual increase in personal income this year. And again, that is wage inflation. That is people demanding more money at jobs because they need more money to buy the things that they need to live. With that, we also got personal spending month over month. And there we were looking for a 0.7% increase, and we actually got a 0.8% increase. But for the year, we now have a 7.2% annual increase in personal spending. Now, it's yet to be noted whether this is because people are buying more stuff and they're more confident, or is it because people are buying the same amount of stuff that they used to, but it just costs them more money to buy the same amount of goods and services that they typically buy? And so are people pulling forward purchases worrying about inflation? We can look at this as an example in the auto industry, where right now some people are not buying cars because they are hoping that the prices of used cars will come back down in the future. But there is a dichotomy there because at a certain point, if prices begin to rise too much for a prolonged period of time, people will switch their expectations and their behaviors. Instead of waiting for prices to come back down before they buy things, they will go out and buy things right now to get ahead of further price increases in the future. And so it's yet to be seen whether this behavioral psychology is playing itself out in the markets where people are actually buying more things now to avoid higher inflation in the future. But the last piece of economic data that we did get was the consumer sentiment numbers, which showed that people are now expecting 3% annualized inflation. And this is a survey of random people within the market that are now expecting higher inflation in the future. But again, their inflation expectations are still relatively low, only 3% into the future. But again, the inflation increases we've had this past year have been much higher. And so that shows that even the consumers still believe that inflation will eventually slow down. And so that makes me believe that people are increasing their spending now, but not to avoid inflation. And so that psychology has not kicked in yet. And so that means that in the future, as prices continue to increase, people will go out to the store and buy more goods in anticipation of inflation, which will thus cause further uh, shortages within the market, which will exacerbate inflation even more.
And Jerome Powell has talked about that in the past, how that can actually be a self-perpetuating spiral when the general public believes there's going to be high inflation in the future. They rush out to buy the goods and services that are available now and cause further shortages and then cause prices to go up even more. But this will be a break in the road once people go from delaying purchases, waiting for prices to come back down, to buying before prices increase even further. The last piece of economic data that we got over the past week that's relevant to U.S. markets is construction spending month over month. We were expecting a 0.3% increase this past month, and we actually were flat. We didn't get any increases at all in construction spending. Now, we have an overall 2.3% increase annually in construction spending this year, and that's a very low number considering all of the hot markets within the U.S. economy. And this is why a lot of real estate stocks got hit hard today. Zillow, Open Door, a lot of house flipping companies are down today. Property development companies down today. Not only with the whole Evergrande situation going on in China, but also because of the weak construction spending data that was released in the U.S. And construction spending is slowing as more property development companies are slowing new operations from both rising wage and material costs. So the same margins for profitability are not there for property development companies because they're having to pay their workers much higher wages to convince them to come off the sidelines. And they're also paying much higher materials prices for steel, copper, aluminum, platinum, what have you. And so it's becoming much more expensive to build new properties. And so the profit margins are just not there for these property development companies. One of the things I wanted to go over, though, from last week to change gears a bit was the testimony from both Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell during the congressional testimony they had last week up on Capitol Hill. Now, a part of why they were brought in for testimony has to do with the fact that Congress is looking to pass the $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill, which I'll go over in a little bit. But also they were there to testify about the growing national debt. And Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell sat next to each other and gave basically a dichotomy of two completely different scenarios. Whereas Janet Yellen, when she spoke, she was speaking about how it's so important for Congress to vote to raise the debt ceiling prior to October 18th so that the United States does not default on its debts. Now, of course, if we have to raise the debt ceiling, meaning borrow more money to pay the the debts that we already owe, that is just going deeper into debt. And that's not actually solving anything because we're not paying our bills. You're not paying your bills if you use one credit card to pay off another credit card. You're just transferring money around. But at the end of the day, you still owe the same amount of money. So to the extent that we have to borrow even more money to pay our existing debts off, we're not getting out of debt at all. And so the fact that we have to raise the debt ceiling to avoid default means that we're just going to default some point in the future. But she was pressed about the skyrocketing national debt. We're quickly approaching $30 trillion here in national debt. And she was asked, why is this not a problem for the U.S. economy? To which her response was, the interest payments on the national debt are so low because we're in such a low interest rate environment and yields on bonds are very, very low 
because they're manipulated by the Federal Reserve. But because interest rates are so low, it's very inexpensive to service the debt that we're taking on, both the debt that we've already incurred and the new debts that we want to take on for further government spending. And that's true for now. But she said she did not uh, address whether or not interest rates will rise in the future and what will happen if we get a substantial increase in interest rates. And this is very telling to me because if interest rates were to rise dramatically, there would be huge implications on the United States cost of servicing our debts, which would really impact the U.S. economy. But after she finished her testimony, Jerome Powell was asked plenty of times by Republican congressmen about the rising inflation. And Jerome Powell actually admitted during the testimony that inflation is starting to uh, advance much more uh, effectively than the Federal Reserve thought it would. Inflation has been much more impactful on the economy, but it's also been stagnant for so long now. He expected that inflation was going to go away after two or three months. At least that's what he told the markets. But he admitted that the the Fed got it wrong in regards to how long we would have inflation here. But he reassured Congress and the nation that if inflation does continue to pick up and start to get at a pace where it's running out of control, not to worry because the Federal Reserve will use its tools to fight inflation. And again, what are the tools the Federal Reserve has to fight inflation? Well, that is to raise interest rates. And so you have here Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell testifying right beside each other one saying not to worry about the national debt because rates are so low and the probability of rates rising is very low, yet you have the Federal Reserve chair sitting right next to her saying that if inflation rises, not to worry because the Federal Reserve will use its tools to fight inflation, thus raising interest rates. And this is a huge dichotomy because clearly one of them is lying. Now, most people in the market believe that the Federal Reserve will allow interest rates to rise to fight inflation. Again, as I've been saying, and as should be evident in what Janet Yellen said, we shouldn't worry about rising interest rates because the Federal Reserve will not allow rising interest rates to happen. Jerome Powell knows the implications of allowing interest rates to rise to fight inflation. He understands that if interest rates rise substantially, which is what it would take to fight and annualized 6.6% inflation and growing, that if rates were to rise that substantially, the U.S. government couldn't afford to bring in enough money just to pay the interest on the national debt, let alone continue servicing the debt, and also continue providing all of the promised benefits to Americans, such as Social Security and Medicaid and welfare and what have you. So this should tell the markets the fact that you have these two, the U.S. Treasury Secretary and the U.S. Federal Reserve Chair sitting next to one another in congressional testimony with completely opposite conclusions on what they're going to do both about the national debt and inflation, that inflation is not transitory because the Fed can't fight inflation. They're not in a position to fight it. And whenever there is issues with government spending and more funds need to be appropriated for government spending, The Federal Reserve always plays along by keeping interest rates low so the government can borrow more and more money at cheap rates to continue to spend. And all of that is inflationary. So I don't understand why the markets see this and they still believe that inflation is transitory. But 
with gold rising over the past week, along with bond yields, and along with weakness in U.S. equities, maybe this is showing that the markets are finally starting to get it. Again, gold was hit very hard by the rise in bond yields initially, but it recovered very well last week, was up $50 off the lows last week, and has another up day going today. With that, I want to get into the $3.5 trillion spending bill that is currently being proposed by Congress and by the president. And I saw a tweet by Jeffrey Gunlock that I wanted to quote because it's actually a brilliant tweet. The latest governmental math illiteracy, a $3.5 trillion spending program, almost certainly underestimated, by the way, will cost $0. If you listen to Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi or even many Republicans, many people are saying that we can pass a $3.5 trillion spending bill and it will cost Americans earning $400,000 or less no money. Nobody will have to pay any higher taxes. There won't have to be any more rising inflation for it. Congress is trying to sell a bill of goods to the American public because they believe the American public, and they're probably rightfully believing so, that the American public is dumb enough to buy it. The American public probably believes that a $3.5 trillion spending bill can be passed, and as long as we borrow in our own currency to fund the bill, that nobody has to pay higher taxes. And of course, we can do that, but then it's just going to make inflation run even hotter. Like anybody needs that. I mean, inflation is already up 6.6% annualized by the CPI, and the CPI doesn't even measure it correctly. But I want to go over some of the stuff that's actually in this infrastructure bill. Of course, you have to put infrastructure in quotations because most of the spending in the bill has nothing to do with infrastructure whatsoever. But I want to go over some of the things that are in the bill. And this bill has a lot of different pork built into it. But one of the things that's going on in this bill is the Democrats are trying to use the bill to push vaccine mandates through the back door. Because if, and this is according to Forbes, but there is a 10% Uh, or sorry, a tenfold increase in fines for employers that will willfully and repeatedly violate a section of labor law that deals with hazards, deaths, or serious physical harm to their employees, i.e. not mandating that their employees get vaccinated. And the idea is the Democrats want to punish employers who are not going to force their employees to get vaccinated by imposing fines on the employers. Now, some of the fines for bigger companies with over 500 employees, mostly corporations, some of the fines might go up to $700,000 per employee for a serious infraction. And that is, again, for each employee, for each incidence. Now, they're trying to get this passed in the bill. But as I said, this is basically a backdoor way for the federal government to mandate that all citizens get vaccinated because the federal government knows by and large that Biden cannot propose vaccine compliance to the nation in a constitutional manner. And so the way around that is Biden's trying to impose these mandates on employers, right, because employers are ent- just uh entities. They're not individuals. Now they're made up of individuals, but they're just entities. And so they're trying to place the mandates on the employers. And by doing so, I mean, look, in theory, 
nowadays in America, you don't have to work to make a living because the government will take care of you if you don't work. But in theory, if you're going to earn a living, you have to go out and work for an employer or start a business yourself, but you have to work. And so to the extent that your employer doesn't want to hire you because you're not vaccinated, because they don't want to deal with all of the litigation and legal trouble with having fines for having unvaccinated employees, employers under these scenarios, if they're passed through this bill, are not going to hire people that are unvaccinated just to, to, to save their, on their own risk. And so that means that if you want a job in America, you're probably going to have to get vaccinated. Again, this is the back way door of the Republican, the, the, or sorry, the Democrats to sneak this into the bill so that they can mandate vaccines because they want to control the population and they think they know what's best. Now, I'm not going to get into whether or not the vaccine is actually safe or effective. I'll let everyone use their own opinions on that. But regardless of whether or not you think it's safe or effective to use, it, the choice should be left up to the individual. This nation is about individualism and making your own decisions, not having the government or mobocracy make the decisions for you. But of course, the bill will probably cost way more than $3.5 trillion because people will alter their behaviors to qualify for all the sub government subsidies that are going to be given out. Other parts of this $3.5 trillion spending bill include free pre-K for all households, additional child care benefits to be funded by the taxpayer. Another thing is electric vehicle subsidies. Now, I want to actually talk about an example of a friend of mine who purchased a brand new Jeep Wrangler this past year. See, there's a lot of credits that are given to automakers that make electric vehicles. And so the idea is they want to start getting automakers to produce more electric vehicles and get away from the traditional type vehicles that are powered by oil. And so the idea was they want to give subsidies to electric vehicle manufacturers. Now, what Jeep, Jeep did with their Wrangler is they turned the Wrangler, the 2021 Wrangler, into a hybrid. And so it can actually take an electric charge and it can run for only nine miles on an electric charge. Now, what's the, pur the purpose of making a car that can take a charge and only run for nine miles on it? Well, to qualify it as a hybrid vehicle so that the automaker Jeep can qualify for the subsidy being handed out by the government. And just as I said, whenever the government promises some sort of, uh, uh, some sort of subsidy or benefit to a group of society, people will always alter their behaviors to qualify for as many government subsidies as possible. And that includes businesses such as Jeep that want the subsidies. And so what do they do? They create a quote unquote hybrid vehicle that's not really a hybrid vehicle because they don't create it for the purpose of actually having a hybrid vehicle for performance reasons. They just create it so that they can find a loophole around the tax laws that are giving subsidies to electric vehicle makers. And again, if you look at some of the other things that are going to be in this quote unquote infrastructure bill, yes, it includes money to be appropriated for roads, bridges, buildings, but it also includes things like Wi-Fi, 
uh, solar and wind energy, right? All these new Green New Deal infrastructure plans that, again, we cannot afford as a nation. We don't have $3.5 trillion sitting in our treasury. We don't have enough Americans at work to collect income taxes from to pay for all of this stuff that's being handed out by the government in this bill. So how can Americans even afford to pay for all this? Everyone is broke. Everyone is loaded up to the hilt with debt, credit card debt, auto debt, student loan debt, personal debt, so on and so forth. We have 43.1 million people that are on food stamps. And if you don't believe me on that, that number is posted on usdebtclock.org. You can go and look it up for yourself. But I've gone over these demographics in the past on episode 27. If you want to go give it a listen, it's U.S. debt clock. Time is ticking away. And if you want to go look at all the different debt figures specifically related to the United States and to the United States consumer, uh, go check out that episode. But America has no money to pay for any of this. And so the entire infrastructure bill will not be funded through taxes, but it will be funded through the printing press by printing $3.5 trillion, which at the end of the day will cost $3.5 trillion in terms of purchasing power because of skyrocketing inflation that will incur from that money printing. Of course, most people will think it would be free, a free infrastructure bill because they don't have to actually pay anything out of their pocket. But what the government does not take in taxation, it will take away in purchasing power by creating more inflation. Now, two aspects of the debts that I just mentioned, again, we have record high credit card debts, student loan debts, auto debts, and personal debts in America, along with a record high national debt, of course. But two of those that I want to talk about more in depth is the auto bubble and the student loan bubble that we're in. Now, the GM just had their earnings call the other day. And the average cost of a brand new GM vehicle is now $54,000. So that is more than most Americans earn in a year. But that is what it costs to buy a brand new vehicle, $54,000. And we have auto credit is at record highs. Now, whenever consumers buy on credit, the industry is pulling sales forward, right? Because if people had to actually save enough money to have the full amount to pay for a vehicle in whole, they would have to wait a lot longer to purchase whatever vehicle they want. When people can borrow money to buy vehicles on credit, it pulls those sales forward from the future into the present. But of course, because people are over-consuming by doing that, that means in the future they will have to under-consume. And so when you pull auto sales forward from the future, that just that means we have more sales in the present, but it means we will have dramatically less sales in the future because people will not only be repaying their debt, but they'll have to repay the interest on their debt, which means they have a lot less money for spending in the future. But we right now in America have $1.42 trillion of outstanding student loans. $1.42 trillion. of households own at least one vehicle. And the way it breaks down is that 33.5% of households own one vehicle, 33.1% of households own two vehicles, and 24% of all American households own three or more vehicles. 
So there's currently 276 million vehicles registered in the United States. If you average that out with the amount of debt that we have on vehicles, the average person that owns a car owes $5,144 on that car. And if you include the interest payments that will accrue, the average person is making a car payment of $7,200 a year to include their interest. And this is with car prices only just beginning to skyrocket. What happens when gas continues to increase and people have to pay more for gas as the cost of living goes up? What happens when car insurance prices increase because the cost of living increases? What happens if we're unable to import as many vehicles or vehicle parts from overseas and there's less supply than what we even have now? The auto industry is in a huge bubble. And so many of the automakers are expanding their businesses at the completely wrong time. Now, remember, automakers are very cyclical businesses, meaning they rise and fall with the general economy, right? Because it takes a good economy for people to be able to buy cars because it's a very big purchase. And so when we have economic downturns, typically car manufacturer stocks and automaker stocks get hit very hard. Ford, GM. Chrysler, what have you. We are at the top, top of a market cycle. We have inflation is starting to hit very heavily here. And we have all of these automakers are now focused on expanding their businesses at the complete wrong time in the market cycle, right? By expanding into EV manufacturing, all sorts of Notable car makers are now trying to go into the EV sector, both because, again, the government's trying to provide subsidies to push them in that direction, but also because they're trying to compete with the likes of Tesla and other EV automakers, and they're seeing the trend moving towards EV. But again, this is the complete wrong time to expand because we're about to go into a market downturn caused by inflation. And so the auto sector is probably going to be hit very heavily. But again, look at the demographics of how many sales have been pulled forward. $1.42 trillion in outstanding auto loans. Those are sales that have been pulled forward from the future into the present. And people are going to be weighed down by paying off these auto loan debts. And a lot of these debts, by the way, are going to be defaulted on because a lot of Americans will not be able to afford to make the payments on these cars. The second debt that I wanted to go more in depth was the student loans. Now, student loan forgiveness is being widely discussed in Congress nowadays, whether they're going to do full student loan forgiveness or partial student loan forgiveness. A big agenda of the Democrats is to forgive student loans. Now, when we say student loan forgiveness, this implicates that the U.S. government is going to have to pay back some private banks and institutions that lent out this money. Now, we have $1.7 trillion of student loan debt in America. As if $1.24 trillion in car debt wasn't enough, we add on $1.7 trillion in student loan debt. But of that $1.7 trillion, 8.4% of that is owed to private institutions, which comes out to roughly $140 or $150 billion. So if we have student loan forgiveness, and again, this is not being considered 
by the crowd that is saying that inflation is transitory. If those student loans are forgiven that are owed to private institutions, the government co-signed those loans, meaning that the government has the obligation to pay back those private institutions that 140 to 150 billion dollar ticket. Because if you owe a private student loan to a bank, and the only reason you got the loan was because the loan was guaranteed by the U.S. federal government, well, if you have your loan forgiven and you don't repay it, the federal government has the obligation to pay that loan to the private bank that you took the loan from. And so, again, there's no money there in the U.S. Treasury because we're broke to pay any of this. And so to the extent that there is student loan forgiveness, 140 to $150 billion check is going to have to be written to all these private banks that wrote out all these student loans in the private sector. And on top of that, for the remaining portion of that $1.7 trillion in student loans, if they're forgiven, or at least partially forgiven, is income that the U.S. government has already included in the budget, right? Again, when the government same thing with the stimulus that they're trying to pass in the infrastructure bill. When they pass a budget, they can they conclude that whatever money is supposed to come into the U.S. government will come in. They don't conclude that there will be any defaults. And so that $1.7 trillion is baked into the pie of the money that the government's supposed to collect from its citizens to then go and pay all of its obligations. But again, if this money doesn't come in, that means the budget will fall shy of $1.7 trillion, which will be even more money that will have to be printed by the Federal Reserve to make up the difference in the budget deficits. And the problem with government spending bills, again, just like the infrastructure bill, when the government decides to spend money by subsidizing student loans, it assumes that all those student loans will be repaid and it plans all that future payment as income. But what happens if people default? And look, students, there's a lot of uh, subjectivity out there. Should students be forced to pay their student loans back or not? The fact of the matter is the student loans right now are not bankruptable. Now, the reason they're not bankruptable is for obvious reasons, if you think about it. If you're a student, a typical student who's 17 or 18 years old, who's just starting out, you're probably not going to have any assets. Certainly, if you need a student loan, you don't have any assets. You probably don't have very much income. You don't own anything. You don't have any money in the bank. And so if you take your student loan out and then you go to your college and you graduate college, you probably still have no assets to your name. And so you could just declare bankruptcy because, again, you have no assets. Your credit score is probably extremely low because you're just starting out in life. And so if if student loans were bankruptable, everyone could just go take out a student loan, go to college, and the second they graduate college could declare bankruptcy on their student loan and just start from scratch. And so clearly there's a huge moral hazard there. So you can't make student loans bankruptable. However, look, these student loans that are out there, this $1.7 trillion, it is going to be defaulted on one way or another. Either the government is going to allow people default by giving out student loan forgiveness, or most people are just going to default because they can't afford to repay the loans. Most people throughout this pandemic have not been paying on their student loans. They haven't been making their monthly payments because they've been given a moratorium. And so now they're even more behind on their student loans. 
But most people can't even afford to pay the interest on their student loans and continue to pay down the principal simultaneously because most people graduate college and they can't find a job that pays a reasonable living because everyone goes to college. And so having a college degree doesn't separate you from the rest of the workforce anymore. So most people that graduate college can't even afford to pay their student loans off anyway. And so they'll either just continue to make the minimum payments on their student loans. They'll either be forgiven or people will just have no choice but to default on their loans by not paying them because they can't afford them. Again, especially as inflation continues to increase and the cost of living continues to go up and up and up, people will have less money available to pay off their student loans because they're going to be using more money to pay their rent and to buy food and to pay for insurance and all of the different various costs of living that are skyrocketing right now. But student loans have been a complete disaster, just like everything else created by the federal government is a disaster, including our entire economy that is just a debt bubble that is waiting to pop. And the government is broke. The national debt is now approaching $30 trillion. We produce nothing. We have no savings. We have no ability to save because we have so much debt. And America has never been in worse economic shape. And this is all going on. Meanwhile, Janet Yellen is saying everything is good, nothing to worry about. We can afford this huge national debt that continues to increase dramatically every single fiscal quarter. And Jerome Powell says nothing to worry about. Inflation is transitory, even though we've had to redefine transitory three separate times now. And even though we see that the cost of living are going up for Americans every day, no need to worry if we have inflation. We'll fight that inflation by raising rates. Meanwhile, you have right next to me, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, saying that we don't have to worry about the national debt because rates are never going up.